This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This episode is hosted by Jessica Brodkin, who you may remember from episode number 11. She's filling in as a guest host for All Possibilities as I take care of my newborn baby. Enjoy the show! Imagine sitting in Mario Batali's flagship restaurant, Babos, and feeling spiritually guided to speak with him, only to be offered a shot in his kitchen. Today, you'll hear from Holly Burling, a spiritual intuitive, and her journey from repressed memories to a Buddhist pilgrimage in Bhutan. Let's rock and roll. Welcome to the All Possibilities podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. So, Holly, thank you so much for joining us on All Possibilities. Thank you for having me. I know that you've had an amazing journey and that it's still ongoing. And I'd love for you to share that with our listeners in terms of where do you believe your spiritual awakening began? Yeah, so my journey began really in my teens. I was going through a really, really hard time and everything on the surface looked okay. I was popular. I had a lot of friends. I was doing well in school. I was running track and cross country and doing excelling really in sports and I knew there was something wrong. There was something wrong with me. I felt um, really depressed. I developed eating disorders. And, you know, I just felt like there was something inherently bad about me. And I didn't understand what it was. And, um, you know, it was a really painful time. And I went away to college and the depression got worse. And I started drinking really heavily. And that was a way just to cope with some of these dark feelings and pretty soon after starting my freshman year of college, I met a guy, um, Andre, and pretty instantly I fell in love with him and just deeply connected to him. And it was mutual, but there is something within me that wouldn't let me take it to the next step and be romantic with him. I was afraid of him. I was actually really terrified of him. So, um, you know, I just kept wondering what's wrong with me. I started reading books about healing and really just tried to figure out what's going on, what's causing me to be so afraid of this intimacy with him. And after about a year of that, I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. I just um, got into a place where I I didn't want to hold myself back and I was going to explore this relationship. And so when I did, um, I think because there is so much love and intimacy between us in such depth, it opened up a space where I saw what had been causing all of my depression and my suffering. I realized that I had been sexually abused in my childhood. Um, And you hadn't remembered until then? No, I hadn't remembered. I just knew there was something wrong, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. So in the space of that really deep relationship in our love, I realized I had been sexually abused by a family member, a distant family member, but, you know, he was close to our family, um, We spent a lot of time with him and went on vacations with him um, and someone I really adored, but I just completely repressed 
the abuse. So that really um, started me on my healing path. The remembering. Yeah, the remembering. And at the time, um, I remember being really committed to healing myself. And it's interesting because when I look back at that time period, I realized I was being really divinely guided to heal myself because there's no reason I would have known how to help myself to the level that I did. So I did a lot of journaling. I found myself um, a therapist and I didn't like her. She wanted to put me on a lot of medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just knew that's not going to help me. Just as this 19-year-old girl, I knew I have to feel everything in order to fully release it and to fully heal. That's really brave for a 19-year-old. Yeah, I know. I agree. <laughs> right? I know when I look back, because I've been looking back at my journals from that time period and doing some writing around that time period, and I was just amazed. Yeah, I just... I was really brave, and that's why I feel like I just was so tapped into some kind of divine support. So I I found a new therapist whom I really trusted and who I had a great rapport with, and she just became a really good ally in my life. And I knew, instinctively, I knew I had to talk about the abuse in order to free myself of it and in order to lift some of the shame that's so associated with sexual abuse. And so I, one by one, called trusted family members and girlfriends, and I would pick up the phone and call them and tell them, this is what happened to me. And it was part of my way to really start vocalizing it so it would really settle into my consciousness. So I would... That's really... Another really brave thing to do. Did you have any backlash for doing that? No. No, no backlash. That's Um, amazing. Yeah. And rare, I think. And rare, yeah. I just somehow... I knew who I could call and trust to tell. And there are some people I just knew, even if they were a close friend or you know a family member, I knew they wouldn't be able to handle it or would possibly have a bad response. So I really you know, spoke about it. Um, I got a, a book recommended by my therapist called The Courage to Heal. Mm-hmm. And it's a really huge uh, textbook for survivors of uh, sexual abuse and rape. And I read it cover to cover in my dorm room. I did all of the exercises in it, which were, you know, really hard. It was really hard. But again, there was just some force that was guiding me um, to heal myself. Do you think you primarily healed yourself? Or do you, or, you know what I mean? Or did you go to a lot of different types of modalities? Or was it mostly just you, books, and this divine force? I mean, at that point, it was me, my therapist, um, the the man that I was with, Andre, was incredibly helpful and supportive, um, and I had some really good, you know, friends and um, family member. My aunt Kathy was critical in helping me, mm-hmm. so that's really where I was working at that point. And then later in life, I would turn to other modalities, but at that point, at age nineteen, twenty, that's really what I was focusing on, just what I could do mainly myself, while still, you know, getting a degree in biology in college. Mm-hmm. So. All of this healing, was this around the time that you had your awakening? Yeah, it was. Um, so I was, and I just want to emphasize, you know, I was doing all this healing work, but it was also a really hard time. You know, I was really devastated. That's what trauma does. It was a lonely time to some extent because people can't necessarily be around you <laughs> when you're going through this heavy stuff. So some of my friends fell to the wayside um, which, which is okay. And it was how it was meant to be, right. but I did have my core of support. 
So was this around the time of your spiritual awakening? And what does a spiritual awakening mean for you? So I was going through this time of healing myself and different women started coming to me and asking me for help. You know, one woman came to me and said she had been gang raped in high school. Wow. And came to me for help. And I was 19 years old and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm in the midst of my own trauma. So I just shared with her what I knew. And then another woman came to me who had just remembered she had been sexually abused by her father. And she came to me and asked for guidance. So I was really humbled that these women were coming to me for help at such a young age when I was still in my own trauma. And I just started realizing, um, again, there is this, this powerful force that was working through me and that would eventually lead me to become a healer many years later, but it was already, the healing component was awakening at that point. What does the term spiritual awakening mean for you? Does that mean that you got more messages from the universe? Does that mean that your intuition became stronger? What, what exactly does that mean? That's a really good question. For me, it meant really connecting with a greater force mm -hmm. and really believing that that force was the divine, I call it. I usually call it the divine. Sometimes I call it source, but that it was always with me, always around me, always supporting me. And I had a really unique, well, my first waking vision happened when I was, I think I was 22. Mm. And the man I had been with for three years who I really, you know, to be in that relationship, I really had to just open my heart up fully and be completely vulnerable because part of me thought, you know, any normal person who is in a relationship that reminds them of repressed trauma from their childhood, most people would say, I'm going to put this relationship on hold or not pursue it, which at 19, that seemed like a really normal thing to do. But I just knew I didn't want the trauma to prevent me from living my life and from following my heart. So this man really became the gateway into the trauma, but also the healing. And after three years together, um, he ended our relationship and it came as a really big surprise and shock. And he, he did it in a way that was really cruel. And it really just devastated me because I had already been betrayed by the family member who had abused me and lost him in my life, who, who I had loved dearly. And then to lose this romantic partner in such a devastating way really, really broke me. And I went into a really dark place and the best way I can describe it is that I saw, I saw darkness in everything. So it could be a gorgeous sunny day. I could see a beautiful tree with beautiful leaves and beautiful blossoming flowers. And my eyes would focus in on a little black spot on one of the leaves. And that was kind of like my paradigm in my view. So I was, it just really, it, it broke my spirit. And during that time, that's when I feel I had my spiritual awakening where I really, um, even though I'd already been connecting to this force the end of that relationship kind of took me out of that divine love and healing and just put me in a dark place. So during this time, I had gone to visit my best friend at a beach house in Connecticut. And I went upstairs in the late afternoon and lay down on a bed just to close my eyes. And I just remember the window was open and I could smell the ocean and I could feel the sunlight coming in on my skin. And there's this beautiful breeze and I wasn't asleep. So you know, I was, I was awake. It wasn't a dream, 
but I saw myself, it was just a spontaneous vision. I saw myself walking through this gorgeous, um, rose garden and I was walking amongst these beautiful roses and they're just majestic and beautiful. And the thorns scratched me as I walked through them. And I saw that, you know, I'd been cut and there was some blood and some of the thorns had actually gone into my skin. And I heard a really clear voice say, the thorns can cut you, they can pierce you, but they can never touch your spirit. Anything can be healed, anything can be transcended. And it was the voice of the divine. I heard it outside of myself. And it really just deeply embedded this message that no matter what happens to you in life and how, no matter how wounded you are, you can always heal and transcend that. And your spirit is, um, you know, indefinably strong. So that was, that was my awakening. And it really took me out of that darkness and that despondency and despair. And I never, I never even throughout my life, I've had more traumas and heartbreak and pain, just like we all do. Mm -hmm. But I've never gone into that place of despondency again. Coming up, you'll learn how Holly transitioned from working as a chef with Mario Batali to becoming a spiritual intuitive. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Hello, world. I'm Michelle Park. Hello, world. I'm Stacey Eagle. And welcome to Mom Got, Got This. We got this. We are so excited to host this show. We're going to have a show Monday through Thursday, and every day we're going to be talking to one amazing guest who also happens to be a mom, but every day we're going to be asking them about different parts of their life. What inspires them? What makes them happy? What makes them sad? What did they do before they made it? And most of all, their mom journey, because these women have really made it. They really have. And they're all moms. Which is, I think, amazing in itself. Like being a mom is already a full-time job. It's a full-time job. And there's highs and there's lows and we're busy and we're juggling. And these are all working moms. Mm -hmm. So we want to hear their stories. What inspires them? What gets them down? What are the products they use and the recipes to make life easy? What products do they like? What they don't like? <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm so excited about this. Every episode, we're actually going to hear from you guys, the listeners, because we want to hear your mom's got this moment. We want to hear about why your mom. So we want you to join us Monday through Thursday every week. And don't forget to subscribe. So make sure you go to our website, momsgotthispodcast.com. And use our hashtag. Mom's, Mom's got, got this. this. <laughs> <laughs> Premieres May 14th on Mouth Media Network and sponsored in part by luxury footwear brand Tamara Mellon. So, Holly, you said earlier that you studied biology and then you became a chef. How did that happen? So, when I was in college, I was cooking a lot. I always loved food and I would teach myself how to make different things, you know, how to make a souffle, how to make a chicken stock, how to pan sear a steak and make a um, pan sauce with red wine and butter. So, that was my cooking or culinary education while I was in college. And I thought, 
of going to culinary school after um, college, but I knew that wasn't necessary. I felt like I could just get into a kitchen and learn. So I moved to, from New York, I moved to Austin, Texas, and walked into a legendary barbecue restaurant called Stubbs Barbecue and just said, you know, hi, I'm Holly. I went and talked to the uh, the head chef who was uh, Terrell, his name was, and he was like a six foot four, really big African-American man and just said, hi, I'm Holly. I want to cook for you. And he hired me on the spot. That's amazing. So Yeah. So that's how I started cooking. And I eventually worked my way up to fine dining. Wow. So you went from, you said before, from a studying biology in college to working in a barbecue restaurant. Exactly. As a, as a chef in a barbecue restaurant. But exactly. I mean, it's awesome. You just went for it. I just went for what it. What made you go from like, I'm in New York City, you could have walked into a chef in New York City, but you went to Austin to a specific barbecue place. Oh, because I was, well, I was, I was in upstate New York. You I were in upstate in New, New York, York City. Okay. You were in upstate. And I just, I just lived in Mexico and I wanted to continue to learn Spanish mm-hmm. and Moving to Mexico seemed a little bit too much. But so, Texas was so like... So Texas was the next best place where I could be in the sunshine <laughs> and speak Spanish as much as I wanted. <laughs> okay. That's true. No, I mean, it's true. It There's sucks. a lot of Spanish and sunshine in Texas. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. And Stubbs was the best place to work at ever. I had the coolest friends there. There was live music every night. I got to cook for Slash and Axl Rose. And, what? Um, who, I mean, just every musician. Cheap Trick. Um, was there like a Willie venue Nelson. that they could play? I mean. Yeah, there's a venue. Yeah, it's, it's live music and barbecue. Wow. So it's incre- it was like one of the most fun times of my life to work there. I, why would you, I guess the, every chapter has an end. Like, why would you leave? I wouldn't leave. I would be like, I guess I'm going to just hang out with Slash. <laughs> like, I'm going to become, I would be, I would have, be at risk of becoming a groupie. But, <laughs> um, there's a little too much partying and I wanted to move into fine dining. You know, okay. It was fun, but I wanted, because I was really Time dedicated to, get fancy. to learning how to cook. So that right, right. had its threshold at the barbecue place. Right, right. Because with fine dining, I guess you get to expand more. Absolutely. Expand your skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So what was the next step? So the next step was going to Italy to cook. And I moved to Italy for four months and brought my knife roll with me and wow. traveled around and cooked. And I had already, Mario Batali was already on my radar. And someone had mentioned when I told them I was moving to Italy to learn Italian and cook, they said, wow, that's just like what Mario Batali did. And I didn't even realize his story. So he was on my radar. And then when I got back from, this is this is a great story. When I got back from Italy, I traveled, did a solo road trip up to New York State. Wow. Got to New York City to see a girlfriend, and I'd wanted to go to Mario's Restaurant Babo for a couple of years, but just, it's one of those places where there's like a, you know, two-month wait to get a reservation. So I got to New York from Texas, and my girlfriend just spontaneously said, let's go to Babo for dinner. And I said, well, there's no way that's going to happen. You know, it's last minute. No way. And first, I mean, I don't know why she did this, but she said, I'm calling. I'm going to get us in. So she called. Sure enough, they had just had a cancellation, and- Lo yeah. and behold. <laughs> Lo and behold. So we got a table there up near the front by the bar. And I see Mario come in. He sits at the bar and he's talking to someone. And, you know, at that point in my life, I was about 28, I think. You know, I wasn't using the term spirit guide at all. Right. But it really felt like something in my gut said, go talk to Mario. Mm-hmm. But my logical mind said, absolutely not. You don't want to annoy him. That's rude. He's a celebrity. That's, you know, that's not what you do. 
And I remember feeling like, like two people like stood up behind me and walked me over to him. Like I literally feel like someone carried me over there. Two people, one on each side. You felt like it. I felt like that. Yeah. And right. so that there was re- no one actually there. No one was actually there. And in retrospect, those I think were guides um, helping me. And I just went up and I just said, you know, introduced myself, told him I'd just gone back from Italy and how excited I was to be eating at Babo. And we had a really beautiful talk. And he just told me he thought women were better chefs than men. And what? Yeah, he did say wow. that. And we had we had a great talk, a really nice talk. And then I went back to my table and I thought, okay, that was cool, but whatever. Right. Nothing's going to really come of this. And a couple hours. <laughs> so a couple hours later, he was getting ready to leave, and he came directly to my table and he said, "I'll see you here next time in my kitchen working." What? So I thought, okay, this is real. So I went back to Texas. I found out who his assistant was. I emailed her and just said, I'm ready to move to New York, and here's my resume, and this is what Mario offered me a job. So, you know, the universe, this is when I really started seeing even more how guided I was. My friend from New York called and said, I have a rent control department in the East Village for you. What? 600 a month, two bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I know, insane. And so everything really just fell into place. And I moved to New York uh, in May of that year to work for Mario. So can you share what it was like working with Mario Batali? Yeah, it was, it was a really big deal for me to get that job. And it was a little intimidating going into that kitchen, you know, from Texas and going into this high profile kitchen in New York city. And at the time I worked there, it was at its, at the top of its game. And it was, it was an intense kitchen. I want to say that it was the most um, misogynistic kitchen I'd ever worked in. And I'd already been working in kitchens, I think, for about five or six years. It was really, really aggressive. Like people were, was it the talk? Was it group? Was it like? It was the talk. It was the attitude. You know, people would sometimes hide pans so that they had them to get themselves set up for service. But you might not if there's a lot of competitiveness and just a lot of misogyny but mario also said that women make better chefs yeah well it didn't come in my experience it didn't come from mario it was some of the chefs in the kitchen that were aggressive uh you know it's interesting because i've thought a lot about mario recently and i had a different experience with him than some of the other alleged victims um of sexual harassment had, you know, he actually, him offering me the job in New York city actually brought me out of a really tumultuous relationship in Texas that I really needed to get out of. So I've looked at him really as a key player in my life to move me along on my path, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fascinating. And it was so funny when I was still living in Austin and this, I knew I was going to New York in May to work for him, but there was not an exact date set. So it was a Friday afternoon, and I had just had a going-away party. I had a keg still on my porch. <laughs> I just started smoking cigarettes again, and Mario call, himself called me. Wow. Friday afternoon, and he said, and I was, like, so shocked that he was calling me, and he said, can you be at Babo at 3 p.m. on Tuesday for your first shift? Wow. And I was like, that must I must be kn- so exciting. Well, I knew Texas is very far from New York. So I had a long way to travel, but I didn't dare say no because I thought I could lose this job. So I called up my best friend. She came over. We packed my house up overnight, 
And then I drove 30 hours by myself in a very short amount of time to get to New York City. You drove? Oh, yeah, I drove. And I got to the East Village to the apartment. A friend helped me unpack my car up a five-story walk-up and started at Babo the next day. And it was, you know, I... Even though he had offered me the job, I still had to do what is called a stage, where you have to go work for yes. 12 hours and prove yourself. And one of his chefs, who has recently been in the news, um, kind of looked me up and down, checked me out at the end of the shift and said, you're hired. So, so that, was like, that was the energy there. Um, yeah, it's all, you know, there's a book. It's all written about in a book called Heat by Bill Buford. And I'm in the book. I'm a character in the book. And all my friends that I cooked with at Baba are in the book. What? So they, yeah. What? So you can read all about it, all the stories. How yeah. did, did you read the book? I read parts of it. Did you feel like it was an accurate portrayal of your experience there? It was. I feel like it was. Yeah. Yeah, and so Mario, you know, he was actually in the kitchen a lot. He was often working, expediting the line. So he would Great. he would be there for hours and hours at, at a time. And he was very, very serious in the kitchen. That makes sense. Yeah, and he, you know, had a lot of respect for his knowledge of Italian food and um, his high standards with cooking. And then outside of the kitchen, you know, he was, he was a partier and... Um, there's a, a lot, lot of, of partying going on. It's there are in many New York City restaurants. Aren't there a lot? Right. I thought that the whole chef kind of lifestyle is working really hard in the kitchen and then partying. Yeah. Very, very hard. Yes, it is. And there's often cocaine. I don't know about your kitchen, but your kitchens, from what I understand from chefs, the chefs I've known in my life. Yeah, I've definitely avoided that aspect. That's but yeah, great. It, it does exist in, in the better restaurants. You know, the, the cooks are actually there like I was because for the art of cooking and they right, are right, right. passionate about it. So a lot of them are more serious about taking care of themselves to some degree so that they can perform as chefs at the highest level. Right. So, but yeah, I lost, I lost 30 pounds in the first year of working at Babo. That's crazy. Because again, it was very intense, very, you know, very, very busy and just very aggressive male energy. And how long did you work there? For two years. And what happened after that? After that, I started really thinking about going to acupuncture school. Right, because that's like a really big shift from Babo's, you know, top of the game in New York. Yeah. You really just you really just like landed in the best one of the best barbecue kitchens in Texas. Then by some miracle you landed <laughs> in the best kitchen in New York or one of, right? It was great, yeah, at the time. I mean, that's amazing. And what made you think that you wanted to go to acupuncture school? Yeah, so actually when I first moved to New York for this job, yeah. within about a month of being in New York, I'd asked a really good girlfriend about a place to get a massage. Uh -huh. And she said, you know, call this woman Rochelle. She does massage. She she does shiatsu massage. She does, which is a Japanese massage. Yes. She does acupuncture and she practices Tibetan medicine. So I called Rochelle and Rochelle, she's another key, I like to call these people key players who really have an effect on your path and yes. positively change the course of your life. Yes. And Rochelle said, um, you know, I'm flying to Italy in, you know, six hours or something like that. You know, I'm catching a flight in six hours or eight hours, um, but I'll see you. And she was going to be going to Italy for a while. So, you know, this was critical that I saw her. So I went to see her. She was 
a little Filipina woman who was just, in retrospect, I think she was a bodhisattva, you know, an enlightened being who has taken human form to help people. And this was my first time getting acupuncture. And she spent three hours with me. And it just blew my mind. The medicine felt instantly familiar to my body, to my spirit. Um, she asked me all these really important, insightful questions about my emotional state, my family, my parents, my relationships. And just the questions she asked were nothing I'd ever been asked by a Western doctor before, but so critical to health and well-being. So I started seeing Rochelle again when she came back from her long trip to Italy. I started seeing her when I could um, afford to. And I just remember this one day, she, she after the session, we were sitting cross-legged on her floor and she looked in my eyes and she said, you know, you're a healer. You can do this. Do you know that? And I kind of thought, well... I guess so, maybe. And she said, no, really, you're a healer, Holly. And shortly after that, she told me about Jeffrey Ewan, who was her herbalist and who mm -hmm. became my teacher. And he, she said he's the most powerful healer she had ever known. So this coming from Rochelle, who had blown my mind and changed my life and was the most powerful healer I had known, I thought, wow, Jeffrey's got to be next level. And so I just decided, again, just these, you know, this guidance that I feel like we all have is just about listening and paying attention. I decided, I didn't look at other acupuncture schools. I just decided I'm going to his school in New York City called the Swedish Institute um, because it's part of a massage school. And that's, it just, it just happened that way. So I left Babo. I was done cooking. Um, and then a chef from Babo, a good friend of mine, Tony, left Babo at the same time, opened another restaurant, opened his own place. And he asked me to come be his sous chef. And we had such a beautiful friendship and connection. I just thought, okay, I'll work for him for just one year. I want to help him out. I want to work with him because I really loved working with him. You know, he was the one guy at Babo who was, well, there was a couple, but Tony was one of them who was just really a good guy and respectful and didn't, you know, he wasn't the aggressive male energy that I was used to at Babo. Um, and so I worked for one more year for Tony. And then I remember my mom saying, you know, and my mother doesn't, she's not the kind of mother who tells me what to do. So when she does give me kind of like a nudge or some guidance or encouragement, I take it really seriously. And she said, you know, because I've been buying all these books on Eastern medicine and reading about acupuncture and starting to read about Buddhism and um, Taoism and you know, Western, or I'm sorry, Eastern medicine, Eastern medicine. And my mother just said, you really should go to acupuncture school. So wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a big deal for her. Again, you know, I just really take whatever she says very seriously. So I just decided I was going to, and didn't look at other schools. I just knew solidly, unwaveringly, I'm going to study with Jeffrey Ewan. And he, he's an 88th generation Taoist priest and a master. He's a true master. So I applied and got in and I started school in January of 2006. Wow. Yeah. And that's actually when my, you know, I always been very intuitive, but when I started school, I really started opening up even more. So something about coming together with him really, as my teacher, really opened me up more psychically. Coming up, you'll get to hear what Holly's up to now and about her recent Buddhist pilgrimage to Bhutan.
The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MouthMediaSen, that's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N, at checkout. Okay, so Holly, nowadays you call yourself a spiritual intuitive and you obviously have a degree in acupuncture as well. So what does a spiritual intuitive mean to you? Yeah, so an, a spiritual intuitive to me, it just encompasses the different, I guess, the different modes of intuition that I tap into. I mean, first and foremost, I'm an empath and I help people to connect more deeply with their feelings. And sometimes they're unconscious feelings that might be driving their life in a certain way, but they're not aware of. So I help them to tap into those deeper feelings so they have an awareness and can make shifts in their lives. And I also, you know, I see things, I have visions, I do see spirits. I usually see them, sometimes I do see them like externally in the room, but often I see them within what I call my mind's eye, but I can't see them in a detailed way. I hear things. Um, so I sometimes hear spirit talk, talking, you know, sometimes it's actually, again, like a voice in a room, but it's often a message coming through to me. Um, and also I channel, so I can channel information. Sometimes I have channeled spirits before. Sometimes it's happened spontaneously, which isn't exactly fun, <laughs> but right. I've gotten much better at, um, not letting that happen. So it's just a spiritual intuitive is, is really the different ways I use with my use and connect with my intuition. So how does that play into your work? Yeah. So ultimately the intuitive part, the intuitive aspect of myself, I think is, is primary to the healing work I do. Mm -hmm. And then the modalities I use to work with spirit and intuition are classical acupuncture right. and the intuitive piece I call intuitive guidance. So I'm not, you know, I'm not predicting the future, even though I have a crystal ball, I'm not looking at my crystal ball per se, but I really am helping to empower people in their own self-trust and in developing an ability to connect with and trust their own intuition. So yeah, and tapping into deeper aspects of their lives. Sometimes there are messages that come through from, you know, um, from beyond, from people who are in spirit that are important messages that I can convey. Right. And then I do some ceremonial work, helping people with big life transitions or really, you know, releasing an old trauma from the past. Some, there's something very powerful about a ceremony to release past trauma. That's great. And to open up to new beginnings for your life too. Right. And you also, you are trained to listen to people's pulses, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so can you describe that f for a moment? Can yeah. Look, what kind of things can you pick up from someone's pulse? Yeah. So the pulse is a really big aspect of Chinese medicine. And I learned directly from my teacher, Jeffrey Yu, and we practice in classical acupuncture. We have a special type of pulse taking that we do that's unique to classical acupuncture. So basically you're feeling uh, the radial pulse, the pulse that runs down below the thumb, and you're able to feel the energy of the different organs, you know, the stomach, uh, spleen, liver, heart, etc. 
and also the what we call in classical acupuncture the communication between the organs. So, for instance, the liver is meant to ascend to the heart, and the liver is said to bring blood to the heart, and that's really vital for um, communication and expressing the emotions because the liver contains blood, and the blood contains the emotions in Chinese medicine. So it must come up to the heart so that the heart can release the emotions and deep feelings in spirit through speech and communication. And that often gets blocked in people. And so in the type of acupuncture I practice in the pulse reading we do, I can identify if there is a block there and help to open up that communication between the liver and heart. And it can have a profound effect on someone's psyche. It can be really helpful in treating deep-seated emotional issues or just in creative expression. Some people come to me and just want to, um, who are writers, actors, singers, songwriters, they want to be able to express more deeply and, you know, from a deeper point within themselves. So we can work on that level too. That sounds amazing. That's really just a really interesting way to diagnose people. Yeah. And through the pulse, you also feel the emotions. And because, because I'm an empath, I've come to realize that I can really connect with someone emotionally through the pulse. So, you know, I may feel a certain quality in their pulse physically, but then I actually communicate with the pulse and I silently ask, well, you know, why, why are the lungs tight? And then their spirit will communicate with me and reveal, um, you know, a a deeper issue, maybe something that's happened to them or recent grief, um, because the lungs are connected to grief. So I really use the ability of um, being an empath to connect through the pulse and, you know, visions come through the pulse too. It's fascinating. So a lot of information comes through the pulse that's really helpful to the person. Awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I also know you personally, so I know that you have, um, you've taken Buddhist vows. Yes. You have a Buddhist name, Pema, right? Yeah, Excellent Pema. name. Does Pe- Pema mean lotus? Pe- yeah, and my full name is Pema Trinley. Okay, and what does that mean? It means lotus of enlightening activity. Wow. Well, <laughs> do you, you get to pick your name or is it assigned to you? No, it, it comes through a ceremony. And I, I took the vows in the summer of 2015 at uh, the temple I practice at called Tara Mandala, which mm-hmm. is out in southwestern Colorado. So my, my main teacher, she's a woman. Her na- She's a Western woman. Mm-hmm. Her name is Lama Saltram Alione. Uh, I took the ceremony and uh, vows with her, which was really powerful, incredibly life-changing, as she said it would be. Your life seems to have had a lot of interesting transitions. Yes. Really interesting ones. And I don't know how you, how did you become a Buddhist? Where did that come from? Is it that you studied Chinese medicine for so long and you were like, you know what, this is a part of me. I want to go deeper. Or did you find it through some other way? Yes. So the woman that I first saw for acupuncture and shiatsu massage, Rochelle, who guided me to my Taoist priest teacher, she was a practicing Buddhist. And so at that point, when I was new to New York City, I did start going to, I went to a a Buddhist um, sangha here in the city and started learning to meditate. So that was a while back and it just wasn't the right fit for me, this particular sangha. So, you know, I was reading books, um, again, introducing Buddhism to myself through books but didn't, you know, I still to this day have, don't have the deepest knowledge of Buddhism. I'm really new. It's such a deep study. I'm quite new to it, really. And there's so many different types of Buddhism also, which I think a lot of Westerners don't always realize. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. Tibetan Buddhism is very different. Yeah. So I practice Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism. And 
I was doing a practice. A, a friend gave me a book. I think it was around 2009 called Feeding Your Demons. Mm-hmm. And that is um, a book that my teach, my Buddhist teacher, Lama Sultram, wrote. And it's based on an 11th century woman's practice. Wow. Yeah, this woman who is my hero, her name is Machi Globdrin. She's an 11th century, basically, force of power. Is she Tibet- she's Tibetan? Or she was yes. Tibetan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Feeding Your Demons is based on her teachings from the 11th century. So a girlfriend gave me that book in 2009. It's a gu- guided um, visualized meditation. And I started practicing it. And immediately, the first time I did it, I actually had a vision from a woman who visited me, who I, I later realized was Machi Glabdrin. So it was really, really powerful to do this practice. And I've continued to do it for many years. And then in 2015, I just decided I need to go out to the temple in Colorado. It's time. And, you know, again, just trusting the guidance around me, I just knew it was time to go. And I, I went out there and, you know, it's in the back country of Colorado. Lama Stultrum built it herself, you know, from the ground up. It's this gorgeous, gorgeous community. And it just, I went out there to start doing the Feeding Your Demons training so that I could eventually be a, a facilitator of the process. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to feed your demons? Yeah, so that's a great question. A demon is really, within this context, a demon is anything that's taking your energy or taking your peace. So it goes into the concept of, you know, something that we fight actually becomes stronger. But if we actually see what our what our demon needs, like for example, if you had the demon of alcoholism, uh-huh. The need might be alcohol, but what, so for the demon of alcoholism, what it wants might be a drink, right. but in this process, you go deeper and you ask, what does it really need? And it might actually really need to feel safe. Right. So that's the deeper need. And so you actually visualize that you feed this aspect of yourself what the real underlying needs are, what the real underlining need. And it's a very powerful transformative process. And it's something that really applies to any, anyone can use this process to change their life. How has it changed your life? I mean, I've used this process so many times and in working through difficult situations in my life, it just, you know, if there's a fear that comes up, if there's grief, whatever it is, I'm able to transform it. And you free up that energy so it actually becomes energy that was, you know, being used for grief or anger or frustration or what have you. You free up that energy and it actually turns into life force. Got it. So it's, you know, gives you a lot of power in your life. So I know that you went on a trip to Bhutan uh, to do a pilgrimage. You were gone for about a month. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. How was that experience? I mean, I, the thing is, I know you told me. So for our audience, um, what was that experience like for you to spend all that time in the Himalayas? It was incredible. Yeah, it was really, I, it really was truly life-changing. And I, I went with my teacher, Lama Sultram. And when I found out about the trip as a possibility about a year before it actually happened, I just got a full, like every cell in my body said, you must go you must go. And and I applied and I was kind of shocked I got accepted because there's a lot more advanced students within my community, but I got accepted. 
And I just knew the feeling I kept having was I'm returning home. I'm returning home. And I did a lot of practice in preparation for the trip, both physically getting into shape for the high altitude we'd be at and just doing a lot of spiritual practices. One involves using a drum. Mm-hmm. And the Tibetan um, drumming is very, very cool. It's very it's like cool. Drumming and chanting simultaneously, right? Yeah, and a bell. And you're also playing a bell, that ringing a bell. That seems really, really hard. It takes some dexterity for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just like like me rubbing my stomach and tapping my head, only like way harder. Yeah. Just like that. No. Um, Holly, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing your incredible story. What words of wisdom or final thoughts do you have for our audience? Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. And my final thoughts, I think my biggest message for people is really that no matter what's happened to you in your life, because as I mentioned, I've experienced a lot of trauma in my lifetime, but whatever's happened to you in your life, no matter how difficult or challenging or painful, you can always heal from it. I fully believe that everything can be healed. That's the belief I carry within myself. And I just want to remind people that you can have an amazing, beautiful, magical, deeply fulfilling life, even if you've experienced a lot of pain and trauma, because I I feel like I'm a walking example of that. I love my life. I have the most amazing life. And it's also been a really hard life, but I just, I just keep moving toward healing keep loving yourself, keep moving toward healing, and it's going to open you up to so much beauty and magic in your life. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So you also have something called the witching hour that I'd love for you to share with our listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the witching hour is, right now it's my biggest passion. It comes directly from my heart. Just really briefly, I grew up with psychic women around me. So my mother is psychic. Her mother is psychic. My mom's sister, who is now in spirit, my Aunt Kathy, my beloved Aunt Kathy, was psychic. And I grew up just hearing all of these stories about premonitions, visitations, ghosts, my whole life. And at a certain point, maybe, I think it was around 2000 and, well, in the 2000s, um, sometime around 2008, my mom, Kathy, her sister, and our friend Doreen, who's very psychic. Also, we got together at my mom's dining room table to do a tarot reading together. And it was one of the most amazing, magical experiences gathering at my mom's table. And we just would, because we're all psychic, it just, our powers would amplify sitting at that table together. And when one of us delivered a really accurate insight the chandelier above us would literally dim and then turn back on. Well, that happens in my office when I walk through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The lights yeah, dim and yeah. then come back up. Yeah. Oh, funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just spear coming through, but it was just so fun. And and the door shakes. My door shakes oh. also. Wow. I haven't, I don't think I've had a door shake before. Um, or opens full of <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that's. That's where the witching hour was born from these um, gatherings at my mom's table, which are some of my best memories. And I wanted to bring this magic and connection out to other women. So the witching hour is really me bringing that energy to a, a group of women. And we sit in a sacred circle and I host a conversation on all matters of spirit. So it could be, you know, developing your intuition, trust, divine timing, synchronicity, communicating with spirits, you know, the, really the topics are endless. But all within that same realm of, re- of connecting women 
closer to their intuition. Yeah. And connecting them to spirit. And it's just gotten great response. The women love it and I love it. It's and just... it's sold out all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's very exciting. Yeah. It's great. So how can our listeners get in touch with you? They can go to my website, which is hollyburling.com, H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-R-L-I-N-G.com. And they can also follow me on Instagram. My handle is hollyburling underscore. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming. So Thank grateful you. to have you here today, sharing oh, your too. incredible story. Thanks for having me. And for you, reflect on Holly's journey and how listening to your inner voice can open amazing doors in your life. I'm your host, Jessica Brodkin. You can find me at loveandlightservices.com or on social media at Jessica Brodkin, B-R-O-D-K-I-N. Keep on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.